All right, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your kindness that leads us to repentance. Father, um, you have been far better, infinitely better to us than what we deserve. Lord, we know that because of our sin, Father, that we deserve your wrath. But you, out of your great love, you sent your Son to bear our sin on that cross and to suffer your wrath in our place and to rise from the dead after dying in our place so that if we would turn from our sins and we would trust in him alone, if we would come to the cross with all of our sins, all of the ways that we have enslaved ourselves to our own wickedness, Lord, you would save us. If we would come, you would wash us clean of our sin and you would make us white as snow and you would grant us eternal life and enable us to follow after you after living a life in total rebellion against you. So we thank you for your mercy, Lord. We thank you for your grace that we who were your enemies through Christ and his cross, we have been made sons and daughters. Lord, we thank you for your great love. And Lord, um, may that love compel us more and more to live for you and to tell others about you and to seek to honor you more and more with our lives. And we pray that through your word this morning, your spirit would just grow that feeling of compulsion within us, um, that this great God, this holy God, loves us, that he sent his son to die for us, not so that we could continue living for ourselves, but so that we would live for him who died and rose again on our behalf. May you conform us more and more to the image of Jesus this morning, we pray in his name. Amen. Turn to 1 Corinthians. We'll look at the rest of chapter 1 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. I didn't really come up with any kind of introduction this morning to the message, so I'm just going to read this passage and then we'll just we'll get right into it. So, verse 26, Paul writes, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world. And the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We saw uh, last time, um, a couple weeks ago in verses 18 through 25, we saw there that the cross of Christ shows us that worldly wisdom is bankrupt. Worldly wisdom is bankrupt. The cross is the very thing that demonstrates the wisdom and the power of God, but the cross is the very thing that the world is repulsed by, finds it repulsive. Jesus is the very person who alone can save mankind, but he is the very person that the world blasphemes and mocks and rejects and considers to be foolish. Those living by worldly wisdom, they turn their backs 
and the only cure available for their disease. They are offended and embarrassed by the only one who can save their souls. There's only one name under heaven given among men by which man may be saved, and that is the man Christ Jesus. But they reject him. And because of that, worldly wisdom is shown by God to be the foolishness that it really is, while the quote-unquote foolishness of God is shown to be the wisdom that it really is. Christ crucified shows that. But there is a second way that worldly wisdom is shown by God to be foolish. A second way. And we see this in verses 26 through 31, which we're looking at this morning. In verses 18 through 25, we saw that the way God saves people, that is, through a crucified Messiah, the way he saves people puts worldly wisdom to shame. But this morning, we're going to see that who God saves, who God saves puts worldly wisdom to shame. These truths about the way God saves and who God saves will not only put worldly wisdom to shame, but these same truths also serve to keep us, God's people, humble. It keeps us from falling back into living by worldly wisdom. That's, that's the benefit of these two truths, that God saves by a crucified Messiah and the second truth that we're going to look at in verses 26 through 31. In this passage, regarding the who that God saves, we are going to see two commands given to us, us, the very ones whom God has saved. Two commands that will humble us and that will, through that humbling, foster the kind of unity that ought to characterize the church of Christ. The first command we find in verses 26 through 29, and it's this, it's consider your calling. Look at how Paul begins in verse 26. He says, for consider your calling, brethren. If you remember back to verse 2 of this chapter, Paul has already identified these believers as the called. He describes them as saints by calling. And then down in verse 9, he says that God called them into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. But here in verse 26, he tells them to consider that calling, to look at it, to think on it. And the context of this passage makes it clear that he's not simply commanding them to think about the fact that God called them by his effectual calling, bringing them into his kingdom. They're not just to simply consider the fact of it, but they're also to think about who they were when God called them. Who they were when God called them. And we know that Paul means that because he goes on in verse 26 to say, consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. If the Corinthians, if they were to take a poll amongst themselves to see what kind of social standing each one of them were in when the Lord called them, when he invited them into his kingdom, when he saved them, they will see that there were not many of them who were considered by worldly standards to be wise. 
There were not many of them who were powerful or had clout in their society. There were not many of them who were from noble or well-born families. Now it appears that some of them were, because Paul doesn't say, none of you were wise, mighty, and noble. He says, not many of you. So most of them were not. The, the poll would be very lopsided in terms of where each was found, what strata of society they were found in. And the point that Paul is making here, he's, he's calling them to look at their church composition because these are proud people. They've begun quarreling. They're boasting in men. They're boasting in themselves. And Paul says, you guys, look at yourselves. You have nothing to boast about. If you consider who you are, who you were when God saved you, you will see that there is no way you can claim any credit for God's having saved you. Because so few of them were wise, mighty, or noble. And the same can safely be said about us here at New Woodstock Community Church. And this is not a very complimentary thing for me to say to you, but it's the truth, and I'm just saying what Paul said, so blame Paul. I want you to look around the room. I want you to look at me. There are not many of us here who can say that when we were saved, we came from the upper echelons of society. None of us can really say that, or very few. I don't, maybe I don't know you as well as I think I do. When God called us, when he brought our dead souls to life, and he enabled us to take those first breaths of repentance and faith in Christ, when he forgave us our sins and he declared us to be righteous in his Son, when that happened, most of us were not wise, not mighty, not noble. And the question we need to consider is why is that? Why were most of us not wise, mighty, or noble by the world's standards when God saved us? And why do you find this trend in every faithful church in every single nation around the world, that the church is mostly made up of misfits and mediocre people, low-born folks who have never even come close to breathing the same air as the high and mighty. Why is that? Well, it's not because there's something about us that makes us better than the high and mighty. It's not because of that. So why? Well, Paul tells us in verses 27 through 28. Look at those verses. He says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. So why do we find this pattern, this trend in churches? It's because the God who is sovereign over who gets saved has chosen it to be this way. Three times he says, God has chosen, God has chosen, God has chosen. When it comes to who we see getting saved, it's largely the foolish, the weak, the base or low-born. It's the despised 
whom we so often see God choosing unto salvation. It's those who are not. That is, those whom the world walks over like they're not even there. Now, does that mean that God never saves big-name professors or politicians or celebrities? Of course not. We know God saves folks like that, but they are certainly not the majority of the church, are they? So why does God do it this way? That's kind of counterintuitive to how we would do it. Why doesn't he choose more of the high and mighty folks? Because you'd think he'd choose those kinds of people in order to give the name of Jesus more publicity, more prestige, more respect. And certainly, sometimes we wish he chose more of those people because if more academics, more rulers, more celebrities came to Jesus, then we Christians, we would be more respected in the world instead of being looked at as freaks. But we have to understand that God is not interested in trying to earn the world's approval. What is he interested in? We saw it here in verse 27 to 28. There was three so that's. God chooses these people so that what will happen? So that he will shame the wise, shame the strong, shame the noble. God is interested in humbling the world. He's interested in exposing the wickedness and the foolishness of those who think they know better than God does, of those who think they are strong apart from the Lord, of those who prefer what the world can give instead of having fellowship with God. So God chooses fools like you and me in order to shame the wise. He chooses weak men, weak women, like us, in order to shame the strong, and he chooses low-born, despised nobodies like us in order to shame those who think they're somebody apart from the Lord. Now, this may surprise you, but it shouldn't. We just read this morning Luke 1, Mary. Who was Mary? Was she in the upper echelon of society? No, she was a slave, a bondservant she described herself as. Someone who was on the low end of the totem pole and God chose her to deliver the Messiah into the world. This is what God has been doing throughout all of human history. God chose Jacob over Esau, who was born first. God chose to deliver Jacob's family and the entire known world during a time of severe famine through the despised brother, Joseph who had been sold into slavery and was languishing in prison. God chose Gideon to judge his people. Listen to what Gideon says about himself in Judges 6.15. He says, Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. God chose David, who was the youngest of eight sons, to be king over Israel. And maybe most shocking of all, he chose Israel, from all the nations of the world, to be his chosen people. Turn, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 7, where he talks about this. Deuteronomy chapter 7. And we'll look at verse 6. Speaking of 
Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you. Notice the sovereignty of God and choosing who he will. He could have chosen any nation he wanted. Any nation he wanted. He could have set his love on any nation he wanted, chosen any nation he wanted. But he says this, He did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. This is how God does things, so it should not surprise us. And this is perfectly in line with the teaching of Jesus, as we would expect. Turn to Matthew chapter 11. And we'll look at verses 25 through 27. Matthew 11. Twenty-five through twenty-seven. And these verses, they come on the heels of verses seven through twenty-four, where Jesus there is rebuking crowds and cities which had heard the teachings of John the Baptist, they'd heard the teachings of Jesus, they've seen the miracles that Jesus did, and yet they've not repented, they've not believed. And so in response to that, Jesus says what he says in verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. God chose not to reveal the saving truth about Jesus to the wise and intelligent, but he chose to reveal it to infants. And again, we can ask why. Why does God do it this way? Well, look back at 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 29. You get the big, so that. Why did God choose these despised uh, people from these despised corners of society? Verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. So that no man may boast before God. Listen to what the commentator Gordon Fee says in, in commenting on this verse. He says, quote, God, it turns out, deliberately chose the foolish things of the world, the cross and the Corinthian believers, so that he could remove forever from every human creature any possible grounds on their part of standing in the divine presence with something in their hands. When God saves someone, he wants nothing in their hands, no glory for them to hang on to, because God alone is worthy of the glory. Now this, this fact, verse 29, that there is to be no boasting before God, reminds us, us fools, us weak ones, us uh, ignoble people, it reminds us to be careful here, because we can still get twisted in our thinking. It is not as though we can look at our lack of mental ability 
or our lack of talent and power and authority or our lack of popularity and somehow twist things that we begin taking pride in that because we think that somehow because of my low status that gives me more humility and more wisdom than the next guy and so the Lord chose me because I'm more humble and more wise than my neighbor who doesn't believe. That is a perverted way to think and we are so sinful that we can begin thinking like that to take credit, to even use our low status as a excuse to glorify ourselves before God. But that would totally contradict what Paul just said in verse 29. God has chosen the weak so that no one may boast before him. No one at all. Paul's point is that absolutely no one can boast before God. So God did not choose you because somehow your low position merited him to choose you. That's not why he chose you. Instead, God so often chooses the foolish and the weak and the despised precisely to show, to make it obvious to the whole world that there is nothing at all in a man that would make God want to save that man or that woman. Mankind is so sinful, so deserving of the wrath of God, that there is absolutely nothing that a man or a woman can do to commend him or herself to that God. We are totally at the mercy of God's independent, sovereign choice. That is why Paul says what he says in Romans 9. Turn, if you would, to Romans 9. I call this passage the great pride crusher of the Bible. Because we like to think there's got to be something, something in me that would make God choose me. We, We tend to always think that way. I'd encourage you to read verses 6 all the way through 18, but I'm just going to read verse 16 through 18. Romans 9, verse 16. Paul says, So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. So why did you get saved and not the person living next door? You cannot point to anything at all within yourself as a reason why. All you can do is look at God and fall on your face and give him praise and thanks for choosing you because he could have just as easily chosen him instead of you, but he chose you. That ought to humble us to our knees and think that God chose you. That is an amazing, indescribable blessing that we cannot find any reason for in ourselves other than outside of ourselves and in the grace of God. So if we consider our calling, who we were when God called us unto himself, we will prostrate ourselves before him and stand amazed that he chose us to be among his people. So that's the first command to humble us. Consider your calling. Consider your calling. We find Paul's second command in verses 30 to 31. 
And, and that is, that command is that we should boast not in ourselves nor in any man, but we should boast in the Lord alone. So after exhorting these believers to consider their calling, Paul then goes on to say this in verse 30. He says, But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Paul reemphasizes here, if it wasn't plain enough by him saying three times, God chose, God chose, God chose, here again he reemphasizes, by his doing, God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Not, nothing of your doing, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. And it's interesting, in, in the Greek, that second person pronoun, you, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, it's emphatic there. It's written emphatically. As if Paul is saying, by God's doing, you, even you, of all people, you, who were foolish, weak, despised, nobodies, God placed you in Christ Jesus. You are a walking rebuke to the world. The world which takes such pride in its wisdom, its might, and its nobility. Because God has largely chosen you, you of all people. No one would expect him to choose you, but he's chosen you instead of them, largely. He goes on to say, By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. As the world was falling over itself, boasting in its own wisdom, its own might, its own nobility. It was reveling in the perceived benefits of being in those upper echelons. As the world was rejoicing and enjoying the benefits of that, you and me were largely left out of that, weren't we? But while that was going on, God demonstrated his wisdom, his might, his nobility to the world by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to be crucified on, in a, on a cross in order to make us lowly ones benefit from his wisdom. In other words, for most of us, the world shut us out. Most of us were not invited to the world's party because we were among the foolish, the despised, the weak. So what did God do to shame those who are partying apart from the Lord? God threw a party of his own, a wedding feast, where most of the attendees are the fools, the powerless, and the despised. And that's a party that most of the high and the mighty want nothing to do with. They don't want to be at that party. But we get to be at that party. And the only reason that we can attend that party, the only reason we got the golden ticket, so to speak, is because of the true wisdom and power and nobility of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to pay for our sins and to rise from the dead in order to invite us to open the door for us to get us past the bouncer, if you will, into the party. We're in the party of God. We're headed to heaven because of Christ. He got us in. And by saving us, you and me, of all people, Jesus has replaced the rags of our foolishness and our weakness and our baseness 
with the crown of his righteousness and his sanctification and his redemption. We read about that in Luke 14, verses 16 through 24. The crippled, the blind, the lame, they made it to the party by the gracious invitation of the Master. So seeing as how it's God's doing that we are in Christ Jesus and that it is Christ alone who has reconciled us to God, it's nothing to do with me or anything I've done or my status. It's all to do with who God is and who Christ is and what Christ has done. Considering that, what should that lead you and me to do? Verse 31, so that just as it is written, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul quotes here from Jeremiah chapter 9. Turn back there. I want you to read these verses. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 to 24. Paul is basing his thinking in this passage on Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. Verse 23, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. That's just what Paul is saying. Now, to be clear, Paul and Jeremiah, they're not saying that being smart or being mighty or being wealthy or noble is wrong in and of itself. They're not saying that. What they are saying is that boasting in those things is wrong. Thinking that those things make you worthy to stand before the holy God, that is what is wrong. Wisdom, might, and nobility never saved anyone, never commended anyone to God. And so God has largely chosen the foolish, the weak, and the despised, people who obviously are unable to commend themselves to God. He's chosen those ones, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, those who cannot pay back God. He chose them to show to the world that nothing can commend itself to God. He only saves by his gracious choice based on the merits of his son. And so if you would be saved, if you would be forgiven, if you would be granted eternal life, you must forsake chasing after the world's approval. You must abandon all of your efforts to commend yourself to God and instead you must place all of your confidence in Jesus Christ alone, who alone has done what is needed to make you at peace with a holy God. So these are the two commands. Consider your calling, boast in the Lord. These are the things that are supposed to humble us. So how does it do this? How does this truth that we've seen in verses 26 to 31, how does that humble us? How would it have humbled the Corinthian believers? Well, when we start quarreling with each other, We need to recognize the pride that we are walking in. And we need to repent from boasting in ourselves, in our own wisdom, 
and our own might and our own nobility. Well, you need to do what I said because I'm wiser than you. Or I'm the one in authority here. You need to do what I said because I'm the one in the authority here. Or you need to do what I said because I'm the elevated position here. The world looks to me. It doesn't look to you. It looks to me. So you need to do things the way I want you to do them. When we're exalting ourselves, boasting in ourselves, we need to recognize that, confess that, turn away from that. And we need to look again at who we were when God saved us. And we need to make our boast not in ourselves, but in the Lord alone. I want to close by reading Revelation 4, 1 through 11, and then just commenting briefly on it. Revelation 4, verse 1. This is the Apostle John. He's recounting the vision that the Lord has given him. John is speaking here. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. These details given about these 24 elders it seems to point to them as being representative of the church because they are ruling and reigning with the one who's seated on his throne. They are on thrones themselves. And they're also clothed in white garments, which in Revelation is a reference to the saints. And they have golden crowns on their heads. Many times in Scripture, crowns are promised to believers that is, those who will persevere in faith until the very end. He said, God says that he will crown them. He goes on in verse 5. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, notice this, verse 10, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things." 
and because of your will they existed and were created. When Christ receives his church to himself, we will find ourselves standing in his presence in glorified bodies, which means that every hint of sinful desire, every presence of sinful words on our lips, every sinful action or propensity to do such actions will be far behind us. We will be unfettered from any sin or any wicked attitudes or anything like that. And in that state, we will lay eyes upon the one who's seated on the throne and upon the Lamb. We will see the unvarnished glory of Christ. And as we look at him, we will feel a weight on our heads. And we will realize that there's a crown perched on top of our heads that he has given to us because we were faithful to believe in him to the very end. And what will be our response once we feel the crown resting on our heads? We will instinctively take it off and we will throw it at his feet because we will see that I did not earn that crown. Jesus Christ earned that crown. We sang, crown him with many crowns. All the crowns that he gives to us, we give back to him and we say, this should be on your head because you saved me based on what you did for me, not because of anything inside of me. And so when I get mad and prideful and I quarrel with someone because I think I'm something, I need to recognize that when I stand before the Lord in eternity, I will see what a fool I was to lift up myself. And so each one of us, if we walk in that understanding, we will be humble and we will be a united church. So let's consider our calling and let's make our boast in Christ alone. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word that convicts us, that is a mirror that shows us who we are, that judges the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And Lord, I'd be the first to admit I'm so often prideful, Father. Um, And Lord, your word has shown us we are so foolish when we are that way. And I'm so often foolish when I boast about myself or I take credit in my own heart and I steal your glory from you. Lord, help us to constantly consider our calling, who we were when you called us. There was nothing in us that commended us to you. It was purely by your gracious, sovereign choice that you set your love on us. And that should humble us. That, should, that, that is no reason to boast in us. That is every reason to boast in you. So Lord, help us to boast in you alone and to be humble toward one another, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.